at the Football Overview today. Another week which highlights Arsenal's consistency issue. Who would we sack Arteta? Despite losing to Chelsea, Man City are crowned Premier League champions. It was a decisive week for those hopefuls chasing Champions League football. The Ligue 1 and La Liga title race. End of the show quiz. Plus, our top five players in the Premier League this season? That's your roundup this week at the Football Overview. Hello and welcome to the Football Overview. Today I'm joined by Johan Aslett. Thanks for having me on, Dill. And I'm joined by Callum McCormack. Evening, Dill. And what was your moment of the week, Yos? I selected Juventus's 3-0 defeat to AC Milan. You know, it was an astonishing result, ever more exposing the flaws and the going in the midfield. Top four, I think, is looking ever more elusive, especially now. You know, next week playing into Milan, going in you know, with their form. Perlo is clearly in a position of peril, and I can't see him there next season. Yeah, we'll discuss Juventus and obviously their hunt for Champions League football a little bit later on. But it was a shocking result, wasn't it? 3-0 to AC Milan and huge pressure on Pilo, isn't it? Cal, what was your moment of the week? So I picked an embarrassing moment of the week, and that was Aguero's Penenka penalty against Chelsea. Could have put them 2-0 ahead and probably would have won the title, but instead chipped it straight down the middle and Mendy caught it, embarrassing Aguero, infuriating Pep and making us all laugh. Yeah, it was one of those moments, wasn't it, with Aguero? He, it's almost as if he had saw his name in the headlines, didn't he, with that Penenka <laughs> and rounding his time at Manchester City off in fine fashion, but obviously... Massively embarrassing moment, wasn't it, for Aguero, that Penenka straight into the hands of Mendy, the Chelsea goalkeeper. But we're actually going to start this week with Arsenal. We haven't really discussed them in depth. And following their nil-nil draw against Villarreal, of course, they are out of the Europa League, out at the semi-final stage. However, on Wednesday evening, they managed to beat Chelsea by a goal to nil at Stamford Bridge. So, Cal, what has been the main problem for Arsenal, in your opinion? And basically, what has led to them being so inconsistent this season? Consistency has been our issue for, for years. We've, we've actually been more consistently bad this season. The problem is definitely, I'm going to say in attack, but I don't just mean the attackers. You can see from our side that there's an emphasis on defence, on not conceding, which is embarrassing then when you do go and concede two or three against a side when you put an emphasis on the defence. That's the danger with trying to go with defence over attack when it doesn't work, the fans get frustrated. Um, but we do have the third best defensive record in the league this season. So you can see there's there's something that we're building. But when you have players like Aubameyang, Lacazette, Saka... You know, even Emil Smith Rowe, Odegaard. Now, you ju- you just expect more f- from our attack, and you know, a nil-nil against Villarreal and a one-nil win where Chelsea gifted us the goal just tells the whole story. There were some really interesting comments from Arteta pre-match against Chelsea, and he said that some Arsenal players have not given their all this season. But Yoz, is this not a part of Arteta's job description to motivate his players? Or do you think that's more down to the characteristics of the Arsenal players, that they just haven't got that self-determination 
to have that required motivation that you need at this top level? Well, I think it's primarily mostly to do with that, to be honest. I think in Arsenal for a while, much of the course of this season, we have a group of players, um, a despondent players, who, who couldn't look more disillusioned with the club. Um, they don't really seem to be satisfied playing for the club. And to be honest, I just think from a managerial standpoint, you know, there's not really so much you can do given players with that mentality in, a, in approaching a game. Very much there has been kind of a philosophical problem with Arsenal for a while, you know, spanning years, to be honest even towards the end of Wenger's era, I never really understood the in-game objectivity. I think one of the very few differences right now, obviously, with Arteta and Wenger, is I think Wenger was just somewhat privileged in having some of those high-caliber players who can change the dynamic of a game, giving any time. I think they overly compensated for that talent. You know, obviously, for example, Sanchez. I was actually going to say this to Callum. You know, could you even tell me what the approach is from Arsenal going into a game? Because I generally couldn't even tell you. No. No, honestly, I couldn't um, for a lot of games. You sit there and Xhaka's playing left back. Rob Holding's playing right back. And you 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 just sat there and you're just hoping that you're going to watch, you know, your side win. But there are plenty of games this season we've struggled to even formulate an attack, let alone formulate chances. If I was going to put it down to one thing, I think it'd be quite easy to say the midfield is not working. But I think more importantly, it's that it's a mixture of a lack of transition from defence to attack, but also a lack of confidence. Because so often I see players building out from the back. I see them in the correct positions, taking up the positions. They're receiving the ball, and then they're just pinging it backwards instead of taking it on the half turn and trying to be confident on the ball and getting that ball forward. The convenient thing would be obviously to blame Arteta for the lack of direction, tactically speaking. But what did really Arsenal expect? It's his first job. He's had no previous experiences. Especially, you know, in fact that they've been struggling the league for so many years. Why would they resort to, you know, giving him that permission, giving him that mantle to revitalise the squad? It just seems ridiculous. I think you and I would come from different points there where I, I actually still believe in Arteta. I'm looking at this Arsenal side at the moment like Liverpool back when Klopp first took over, essentially. That there's a load of players in there that do not warrant being in that side. And you just slowly but surely got to get them out and get your players in. But without European football, without the attraction of playing the best opponents then maybe we, we won't find ourselves uh, at the better end of the transfer market and we'll be str- struggling going forward from here. I mentioned Arteta's comments before about the Arsenal players not giving their all this season. Well, you guys have just both agreed that it's difficult to see what Mikel Arteta's trying to do with this Arsenal side. And some other comments that he said, he said that we are in the middle of a process but we have made progress in areas. The way the team is, the identity of the team, the difference is night and day. However, when he was asked back in March if his side was close to being a Mikel Arteta team, he replied, very, very far. So, Cal, you say that you want to keep Mikel Arteta. You compared him to Klopp. But we could all see what Klopp was trying to do in terms of the counter-pressing. He 
played Lalana, for example, as a box-to-box midfielder and he was trying different players out. You could see that something was happening. I honestly can't tell you how Mikel Arteta's team, what he's trying to build. I just can't see it. I definitely get that and I agree. I remember a comment from Arteta early on in the season, him saying that he couldn't believe how much he'd have to adapt his own philosophy to a football club. I think that shows how shocked he was at the lack of quality, maybe, at the lack of players of his ilk that he would uh, want at the club, which is devoid of the players that he wants. Focusing on Arteta's record at Arsenal for a second... In 56 games, Arteta has won 25, he's drawn 13 and lost 18. So that works out points per game, 1.5 points per game. Emery's Premier League record, so he had 51 games, so 5 less than Emery, won 25, the same as Arteta, drew 13 and lost 13, that works out as 1.73 points per game. And then Wenger's Premier League record in his final 50 games, well, he won 27, drew 7 and lost 16. That works out as 1.76 points per game. So all these managers have had similar players. Arteta spent £76.5 million last summer on Thomas Partey, Gabriel from Lille. They were the two big acquisitions last summer. With that record, can Arsenal afford to give Arteta another £75 million to spend? Because based on his signings last summer and the wages that he gave to Thomas Partey, he's on two hundred and sixty grand a week. He gave a new contract to Aubameyang. Willian, well, Arteta brought in Willian. So surely they've got to sack Arteta now and bring somebody else in and just start again. Because I just don't see this going any other way. I absolutely agree with that assessment. I mean, I think the easy answer is absolutely. I think the Titanic is falling short of lifeboats. And I don't think there's enough room for Arteta, to be honest with you. I don't even think the likes of Kroenke could justify what's been involved in the last year. For me, he hasn't shown any indication that he's capable tactically in making the correct adaptations in revitalising this team. And the question is now, obviously, who do they resort to going for? To be honest, I think anybody they bring in right now with the inherited squad that they're going to have are going to struggle. There is no easy explanation for how they resolve this situation. To add on that comment, that's why I'm sort of quite keen to back Arteta in this moment in time. Because if there was a candidate that screamed out Arsenal Football Club, Arsenal Philosophy, that you could see he's available and you just knew that he'd bring a new wave of life to the club, then maybe I, I probably would be leaning towards sacking Arteta. But at the moment, I don't see any other candidates out there who are likely to come to Arsenal who would improve, who, who would necessarily immediately improve that squad of players. I know you just said all those statistics about the three managers, but let's not forget Arteta did bring us... Well, I'd say two trophies, but I don't really count the Community Shield. So, the, you know, he brought us. You get it desperate, Henry did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He brought in two trophies, one of which is the Community Shield. I must say, though, I don't really understand the, the attitude, like the mentality of Arsenal fans towards backing Arteta. Because Emery had so much stick, so much criticism, 
and he got you to a Europa League final. You mentioned there about Mikel Arteta getting... Obviously, you won the FA Cup last season, but that was in within six months of Arteta getting the job. This season, if anything, they've gone massively downhill. So you discuss a project with Arteta, I understand that. If you can see moderate improvement and you can see the trajectory that Arteta's trying to go down, I could understand it. But we've all agreed that we can't see how Arteta's trying to play. So I'll just name somebody off the top of my head now, quickly. Allegri. Surely you would take Allegri over Arteta with the experience he's got. I'm agreeing with you. I think he is a better manager. I think he is established and obviously he's got a great, much better resume, obviously, than Arteta. The issue is long term. Do I think he's going to be the great progressive manager that they need come the next two, three years? Is he going to be that manager who is going to be competing for top four, if not even the title potentially, depending on what takes place? I personally don't think he is. I agree with you he's better than Arteta. He will introduce that great stability defensively. But again, it's not ideal. But as you mentioned, for me, it's just definitive. They need to get rid of Arteta. I don't understand the lenience, obviously. You know, I don't want to be rude to Callum, but even from the likes of people like him. I think it's almost as if he's just at the wrong club. I think especially the start of the season, he looked a lot more progressive. He looked as if he really was going to do some drastic changes in possession. But it's almost as if it's like an incompatible match between the players and the philosophy of Arteta. And to be honest, I don't even think he knows what the philosophy is. I think he's literally improvising on the spot, and you can't have a manager like that. So it's all good while saying, okay, he needs more of a chance based on what he inherited, but come on, nothing can justify what we've seen, surely. There's surely got to be somebody out there who's better than Arteta, who's got more experience. You've mentioned Arteta's philosophy. We don't know what it is. I'm imagining that he went into Arsenal thinking, I'm going to use the philosophy that Guardiola It's going to be very difficult for him to introduce that at Arsenal. So where does that leave Arteta now? From game to game, I can't see what we're doing. When I look at when I look at one game and I and you know I watch the next, I don't know where we're going. But obviously, there's that trend that there's an emphasis on not conceding. I think sometimes we forget as well. I will go back to Klopp. How much stick Klopp was getting at one point for really? um, You know. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't totally say he was getting, went, I wouldn't say he was receiving any stigma. Stick, I said, but he definitely was when the defense was leaking too many goals. It was definitely maybe not from the fans, but definitely from the media. The difference with Klopp is because he was playing su- such attacking football. Liverpool was still getting those, or the Liverpool fans were still getting those moments as a fan to enjoy and to allow the project to breathe. Whereas. If Arteta's placing this emphasis on the defence, which I think he is, then it's got to be perfect. Otherwise, the fans aren't going to buy into it and he's going to be out the door quicker than... I think there's any doubt that Liverpool were progressing in the clock. Whether, I think, especially the first and I agree with you to an extent, it was somewhat gradual. But you could see that there was progression taking effect. Arsenal have stagnated, if not regressed, since Arteta's come in, in my opinion. I'll just put another name forward that that I actually recommended for the Tottenham job behind Nagelsmann and Rodgers. Graham Potter, look at the job he's done at Brighton. You can see exactly how Brighton are looking to play. They have the worst record in terms of expected goals, in terms of the chances they create. They don't put them away. Cal, surely Graham Potter would be a ideal candidate to start a project at Arsenal, you know exactly what you're going to get with Potter. You can see exactly how he's building this Brighton squad forward. 
how they're progressing season by season. I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. I think he is a good manager. Um, I rate him quite highly. He would be an underwhelming choice. <laughs> that doesn't mean you know it's a bad thing. You know, Arsene Wenger came from Grampus Nine or whatever, whatever the club's called in Japan. Yeah. That was definitely <laughs> underwhelming at the time. Slim pickings for us at the moment. We've got to make the right decisions. It's tricky. It is tricky. As a fan, I'm going to back whatever the decision is that they make. But those decisions haven't gone very to... well over the last few years. Yeah, you say you get I a back the board. Thing, because you well, say it's I... underwhelming, obviously, for all the likes of Potter. But it could be more underwhelming now, to be honest. I mean, it's not a bad alternative, given what you have right now, to be honest. He is more established and is more inclined, I would say. He's had greater success. So I don't really see what the issue is. I wouldn't for say a low you know, status gr- club like you, just, you know. You know. Yeah, I, yeah, okay. I wouldn't say he's had greater success, but everything else you just said, I, I'd agree with. Some of our purchases and our decisions, I really like, and then others, you question whether the same person's making those decisions. As somewhat of an optimist, what does it take then to sack our tear? Because for me, I just think it's absolutely just fine now, being where you are position-wise. It doesn't get more blatant for me than where you are right now. No more improvement until November, December time. For me, though, to be honest, I would just rule that out completely already. For me, being the way he is, first job, as Dylan mentioned, he's tried to kind of you know, incorporate this kind of philosophy that is consistent with Guardiola. It's just the wrong way to go about in the approach. For me, you're just delaying the inevitable completely. There have been enough results for me. You know, we've done the double over Chelsea. We've beaten Man United. Oh, you can't twice. justify that performance with Chelsea. I'm sorry. Well, I'm I'm just I'm just saying different results. We've I think we've beaten Liverpool in well, we beat Liverpool in the final. We beat Man City. We beat Leicester. There are enough performances against good sides for me to hang tight, let's say, and wait and hope as a fan. I think you're picking out some very sour grapes there, Carl. Honestly, I think you're getting desperate. (laughs) Okay. I think what Johan said, I agree with in terms of delaying the inevitable. I can, you mentioned the November, December time, let's give Arteta until then. But for me, it will just end up in another £75 million spent this summer, contributing to more issues more wages on the books, and then just to bring another manager in, potentially in a few months, I think you're better off just bringing in somebody like Potter, start again in terms of the players he wants to bring in, he can bring in his own ideas, maybe bring in a few new scouts. Just before we discuss Manchester City being confirmed champions of the Premier League, of course, well, Bayern Munich, they've won their ninth consecutive Bundesliga title after beating Borussia Mönchengladbach by six goals to nil including a hat-trick from Lewandowski. And this means he is now just one behind Gerd Müller's 40-goal record from the 1971-72 to season. And there's still two matches to play, so that'd be incredible if Lewandowski could beat that record. In terms of the Champions League positions in the Bundesliga, well, Dortmund, they beat Leipzig by three goals to two, with Sancho, what a performance he had on Saturday, he was the standout player with a brace, including a 87th minute winner. And with Wolfsburg beating Union Berlin by three goals to nil, and Eintracht Frankfurt dropping points again, drawing one all with Mainz, that now means that Wolfsburg are third on 60 points, Dortmund are fourth on 58 points, and Frankfurt, well, they are just one point 
behind Dortmund. Manchester City won their third title in four years, despite losing 2-1 to Chelsea and Callum mentioned the Penenka earlier. But of course, with Manchester United losing by two goals to one to Leicester, that confirmed Manchester City as the Premier League champions. And Yoz, what was the defining moment for you when you felt, yeah, that's Manchester City, they'll go on to win the title from here? It's a very interesting question. For me, obviously, the whole tide of just everything changed completely around Christmas time. And it was that game against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge in which I would consider to be the greatest display, the greatest performance in the league this season. I thought Kevin De Bruyne, obviously playing that false line position, was just, it was a stellar performance. He was irrepressible for the Chelsea defence. They couldn't get anywhere near him. And for me, it was that game that really just marked the start of Man City's progressive form, really, and they managed to sustain it in such a spectacular way, and they could win the Champions League. Such a drastic change in events, being from where they were, almost completely ruled out as possible contenders for the title to where they are now. I just think, yeah, that game was the game that really kind of was the turning of events. I think most people would have backed Liverpool for the title at the start of the season. But with the injuries to the likes of Van Dijk and Gomez, I think more people were mentioning Manchester City, weren't they, as the favourites. But then they just couldn't get a run of wins together, could they? And they drew nil-nil, didn't they, at Old Trafford against Manchester United. And you're starting to think, ooh, I'm not sure about this. And then to draw one all against West Brom in Bilic's final game, that was when I was really thinking, yeah, do you know what? I might not back Manchester City here, even with Liverpool's injuries. But suddenly, just a momentum shift, wasn't it, in within that Manchester City squad? And I would agree with that, that Chelsea game where Pep used Kevin De Bruyne as a false nine. And in the key games and the big matches for Manchester City since that game, Pep has tended to go with the false nine. Be that Sterling as a false nine, be that Foden, of course, most often with Kevin De Bruyne. That was the game, I think, when Gundogan went through that transition, wasn't it? When he had that liberty to go forward and be more eventful in attack. The whole dynamic changed, I think, for Man City, I think, in that game. I remember talking to, to you, Cal, around Christmas time, and I said, on oh, Manchester City, they really need a box-to-box midfielder. That's what they're lacking. And Pep, well, he didn't feel he needed a box-to-box midfielder. And the way that he adapted was by positioning Cancelo for a lot of the season, wasn't it? Playing him as a right-back or a left-back inverting into midfield, which then gave the licence for Gundogan then to push forward. And who could have imagined the the goal-scoring instinct that Gundogan has shown since Christmas time? But Cal, can we read anything from Manchester City's defeat to Chelsea heading into the Champions League final? Don't think so. I'd say more so from the match a few weeks ago, possibly, but there were so many changes to the starting lineup intentional of course I I believe with the Chelsea game coming up in the Champions League final who knows what Pep's going to do at any given moment you think you've got him sussed out and then he'll do something that is either absolutely brilliant or absolutely ridiculous you know that's been a theme of his management throughout you know his career I suppose we think we've sussed Guardiola out and then he comes up with this plan or whatever it is obviously against Chelsea he used a 5-3-2 didn't he with Jesus and Aguero as the two forwards and then Sterling and Torres they were almost like 
But if you think back to when England were at the World Cup using that formation, they used Lingard and Dali Ali. Well, Manchester City used Sterling and Torres in those positions on the side of the midfield in that midfield three. For me, though, there's been too often where Guardiola's just overthought it, hasn't he? You know, you think back to the, the game against Leon last season. So could we potentially see Guardiola overcomplicate it again come the Champions League final? Or do you think that was Guardiola's experiment over and done with in that Chelsea game? He tried it out, it didn't work, and then he'll go and revert back to that 4-3-3 with potentially Kevin De Bruyne as a false nine in possession. What do you think, Yeze? It's a very good question. I would be very surprised if he made any major, major uh, modifications to the team now going into that final. I think it'd be far too reckless as like an experiment like scenario. Um, for me, I think both teams were depleted, just so we understand. I think Chelsea defensively did such a great job neutralising much of that attacking development for Man City, almost kind of nullifying them, obviously getting that ball in that half space, almost compelling them to play the ball beyond, and it wasn't working out. So we had them really discomposed. They weren't really doing anything of effect. So for me, I'm actually coming into the final somewhat optimistic purely because of that. I think they are the better team. But I think the way we are structured is really not going to be of any advantage to them. So I wouldn't rule this out. What do you think, Cal? Is that Pep's experiment over and done with and he'll just reverse back to the trusted lineup that's got him to that Champions League final? I'm not convinced that is the case that's definitely what I would do and that is what I'm leaning towards that he'll do um but if if he started again with you know Sterling and maybe not Torres maybe somebody else Mares in in that position honestly it wouldn't shock me nothing shocks me from a pet lineup anymore absolutely nothing if Benjamin Mendy was to play up top I would trust that it was for a good solid reason it, it just but yeah I think he has to revert back to to the tried and trusted yeah it'll be very interesting to see won't it how Pep sets up in that Champions League final there's been plenty of key players for Manchester City this season. We've touched on Gundogan and the goal-scoring instincts that he's shown. We've touched on Kevin De Bruyne. Ruben Diaz, of course, he's been a standout since he signed from Benfica last summer. Other players, Mares, Foden, have really come to the fore recently. And that got us thinking, what are your top five players in the Premier League this season? And we'll start with... Go on, Yuz, we'll start with you. If Your list from five to three. My fifth selection was Kevin De Bruyne. I think for anyone who's been watching him for Man City through these years, I think it's pretty much self-explanatory. I think, although this hasn't been his greatest seasons, there have been periods throughout games which he's really just had the ability to change the dynamic of the game, as explained, obviously, with Chelsea. Um, and yeah, he is just that go-to player. If you ever were to need a player to stand out, so for me, I think it very much is warranted him getting fifth, because even though it's not his best, he still has been brilliant. Fourth, I've gone actually for a surprising one, which was Martinez, the goalkeeper for Aston Villa. Okay. I thought, particularly the first half of the season, I thought incredibly solid, you know, conceded very few goals, and was somewhat underappreciated to an extent. And for me, I just don't think he ever got the acclaim that he deserved. So for me, I've gone him for, especially for that first half, display obviously up till Christmas and third I've gone for Harry Kane I think up till Christmas I think we could argue that perhaps on form he was the greatest player in the league 
and perhaps even beyond that, even the world for that brief spell, I thought he kind of evolved into the ultimate striker. He was doing things at such a high caliber through his movement, to his agility, to his hold of play. He was doing things to an extent I didn't even think he was capable of doing. So he very much exceeded my expectations. Obviously, that form didn't sustain to where we are now, but obviously, I think there are other issues attributing for that. Obviously, the form of Tottenham collectively. But I still think he warrants third for how brilliant he was until Christmas. I think Kane in third is a little bit harsh on him, to be honest. He's top scorer in the league at the moment. You mentioned the form he's shown before Christmas. He, obviously, Tottenham were top of the league, weren't they, until the start of December? Obviously, they've, their form has dropped off recently. But well, you would have had him that higher up, would you? We'll discuss Kane a little bit later on. But Martinez in fourth. Carl, what do you make of that? For me, yes, he's been a good performer, lots of clean sheets for Villa. But I think to have him as the fourth best Premier League player this season, I think that's a little bit too high. What do you think? Yeah, he's definitely a player who came into my mind when uh, writing this list. I think he has been one of the outstanding performers in the league this season. But you're right, it all came in that first half of the season when Villa were on form, when the team was playing well. I haven't seen anything from from him or Villa really since maybe January, February. But the team has dropped off in form. And, you know, we were putting them in the same bracket as Everton and West Ham, pushing for that Champions League spots at one point. So as a performer for the season, he doesn't quite make it into my top five for me. So who did you have then in your list, Carl, from five to three? Well, I actually had another goalkeeper in fifth, someone who I think has been really consistent this year, and that's Chelsea's Mendy. The stability he's brought to Chelsea, I don't think Chelsea would be anywhere near where they are right now if they still had Kepa in goals. I always think it's great when you don't speak about a goalkeeper for the majority of a season. He's probably had a pretty solid season. So, yeah, like Mendy's performances, nothing, nothing too outstanding, I would say. That's the life of a keeper. Keep it boring and you're doing pretty well. In fourth place, I've got somewhat of an unsung hero, I think, especially because he's been injured the last couple of weeks, hasn't been mentioned as often of late, and that's Rice for West Ham. I think he's had an outstanding season, his best season, and for me, he warrants that mention. And I'll move quickly on to my third place, and that's Mason Mount, who I think, again, had an outstanding season. Okay, so you've got Mendy in fifth, Declan Rice in fourth, and Mason Mount in third. You haven't said your top two yet. Looking at your list, Kaus, you haven't got Kevin De Bruyne. You haven't got Gundogan. No. How do those two players not get into your top five? Even somebody like Bruno, I just can't believe none of those three players have got in your top five. Well, they're all players I thought of, definitely. I think the most difficult for me leaving out was Bruno because I think he's been the most consistent over the course of the season. If we're on about quality of player, then half the players, well, those three players don't make it onto this list. But I'm on about best performers this season. De Bruyne, when he's played, he's looked phenomenal. Because he's only played about 19, 20 games this season, I may be a little bit off there, but... I just didn't want to put him in, to be honest, for that exact reason. And Gundogan, Gundogan had about 10 great games. And what did he do before and what's he done after? Has he even played in the Prem? I don't think Man City did anything up to when he obviously took effect, obviously around Christmas. 
to be honest. I think that's not the, the fairest <laughs> analysis, to be honest. I think Man City was still doing pretty well. They played fewer games and they were still seventh going into that period. They still got decent results. Gundogan's finishing was off the scale for a period. It was it was better finishing stats than Lionel Messi, don't get me wrong. But did he do it all season? No. Uh, when was the last time he played in the Prem? I can't remember. When was the last? How many goals has he scored this season? I swear he scored them all within the space of about 10 games. So for me, again, standout performance, yes, but over the course of a season, not for me. If you exclude Ruben Diaz, I don't think there's really been one player, an individual player, who really has consistently performed with such a high calibre throughout this season. So for you to be very selective and say he only played well intermittently from this from this month to this month, I don't really think that's fair, based on the fact that pretty much no one's been consistently very good. And I just think he's been that good since Christmas. Scoring, you know, he's underwent such a transformation, the likes of which none of us could have foreseen. For me, I just think he's been that good. He has to be in the top five. We'll touch on Ruben Diaz in just a bit now, in terms of our top twos. But just to give you my list from five to three. So in fifth, I went Bruno Fernandes. I think he's been a consistent player throughout the season. Very consistent for United. Overrated. <laughs> you could argue he's a little bit... Being honest, yeah. I mean, am I wrong? You, know. you could argue he's a little bit overrated in terms of the acclaim that he gets at times from the Manchester United fans. However, you can't argue with the impact that he's had on that Manchester United team since his arrival from Sporting Lisbon in January 2020 and he's followed that up into this season. I think you could argue again, though, his form has dropped off a little bit the last few months, but he's still been very consistent on the whole, so that's why he's in fifth. In fourth, I've gone Kevin De Bruyne for many of the same reasons Johan said. The reason he's not higher is the fact that, you know, he hasn't been a mainstay in that Manchester City team in the Premier League side every game, as he? he's been rotating with the Champions League as well. So that's why he was down in fourth. And I've actually gone Gundogan in third. And I understand what you're saying, Carl, in terms of he scored those goals within a few months spell. But for me, his impact was massive, wasn't wasn't it, on Manchester City's team during those few months, which really cemented them in that prime position for the Premier League title. But Yos, who is in your top two? So second, for all the reasons we just explained then, I don't want to reiterate much of what we've already said about Gundogan, but I've gone Gundogan second, much for the incredible transformation that's obviously undergone since Christmas. No one could have foreseen it. I mean, he's been absolutely sublime. And I mentioned then, I think he's literally won them games when they've obviously been at a deficit, conceding goals. He's been the guy they resort to, to be the guy to get them that goal, to keep them in the game. So for me, I understand what Callum's saying about his form being somewhat intermittent, but for me, he's been that good. I think it's very much warranted. And number one, I've gone for Ruben Diaz, who I think has really evolved now into one of the ultimate defenders in Europe. I mean, he's been the most consistent player in the Premier League, the most consistent defender in Europe, I would say. And again, you know, they would be nowhere near as defensively stable, you know, if you were to exclude him from that defence. I think if you exclude him from that defence, obviously now with the final scenario against Chelsea, I think... That would make in itself all the difference, arguably. Especially with someone like Timo Werner, who obviously likes to exploit the space and beyond. He nullifies that. So, for me, he has to be number one. For what he's obviously given Man City, that extra stability, that consistency, that distribution, he is the ultimate defender. So, for me, he's number one. 
the impact that Diaz has had on that Manchester City side has been incredible, hasn't it? Much like the impact that Van Dijk had on that Liverpool side when he was first brought into the team back in January 2018. Diaz has had the same impact on that Manchester City side. I think just before he signed, they lost 5-2 to Leicester, didn't they? Even when Manchester City weren't playing great at the start of the season in terms of being at their fluid best, they were still not conceding goals and Diaz was at the heart of that. And they've just carried that on throughout for the second half of the season and they've added goals to it as well with the likes of Gundogan, De Bruyne, Foden and Mahrez who've really stood out recently for City. Bacal, who have you got in your top two? Well, we were just speaking about him there, Ruben Diaz. As Johan said, one of the most consistent performers in the league this season. Changed Man City from a side that looked fallible to a side that are rock solid. Um, I think there was a period where they went 10 or 11 games conceding only one goal from open play, which was that goal against West Brom. Uh, it's just been outstanding. Um, there's not enough praise I can give him and you know what he's done for this Man City side is absolutely incredible. Now, first on the list is someone we've already spoken about, is Harry Kane. In an attacking sense, it's just been incredible. I think something like 21 goals, 13 assists this season. It's the assists that have really surprised me. We always known him as a goal scorer, but in recent years, he has his goals have not dried up. I I wouldn't say, but he hasn't been at his at his best in terms of goal scoring. But this year, he's just been on another level. His all round game has been phenomenal, and for me, he's been the best player in the league. I've got the same top two as Callum, but in the opposite order. So I've gone Kane in second, and then Ruben Diaz top. And the reason I went Diaz above Kane was just because of the consistency throughout the whole season. You could argue that that's a little bit harsh because Kane's picked up a few injuries. Obviously, that Tottenham side haven't performed to the same standard they did in the first few months of the season. Is that solely down to Kane? Probably not. But Ruben Diaz, as I said, the impact he's had on that City side since he was brought in, for me, he just had to be top. But Cal, how come you went for Kane? What made you just give the edge to Kane in, in that debate between the two of those guys? I think it was the assists combined with the goals. I think there's one thing being a great goal scorer and one thing being a great all-round striker. And, you know, the great strikers we see involve other people into play. But they always seem to get back onto the end of their own attacking setup it goes into them it goes up wide they get back into the middle that's just one example but the quality of balls he's been putting into son to the other tottenham players has just been incredible to watch and yes i do think diaz has been phenomenal and uh, it's such a consistent performer but for, for for harry kane to do that in that Spurs side compared to Diaz doing it in that Man City side. That's why I I just edged Kane over Diaz. Probably now I would have gone Kane second. Based, you know, I'm not going to lie, based on what you're telling me, it's very compelling stuff, Cal. You're doing a good job <laughs> for, for a change. <laughs> yeah, that, that was an interesting point though, Cal, in terms of Kane doing it in that Tottenham team, Ruben Diaz doing it in that Manchester City side. However, I would just go back to that loss that Manchester City had against Leicester, that 5-2 loss, which then led to City 
going out to sign another centre-back. Of, of course, they went and signed Nathan Ake, didn't they, in the summer from Bournemouth for £43 million. You know, we won't get into that, but that wasn't a great signing by any stretch of the imagination, was it? <laughs> but that, of course, led to, uh, no. to Guardiola bringing in Ruben Diaz. I was just going to say, because, um, as you would know very well, I think there was an infamous moment when me and Dean attended a Cardiff game and obviously we played Chelsea. I think it was in the Premier League the first season when they got there. At the end of the game, we're running to the bus to get the autographs. And people are like, oh, Ake, he's there. He's a person of great potential. You know, and we, we literally said at the time, I think he's a really overstated player. He hasn't got much quality. I don't think he's going to do anything. <laughs> and we ignored the autograph. I think it was good judgment on, on our behalf. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a good decision, wasn't it, Yose, to ignore his it autograph? It really was. Um, the performances he's, he's shown paper. this season just haven't been at the level whatsoever. And even in that 2-1 defeat against Chelsea on the weekend, Chelsea almost focused their attacks down Manchester City's left with Mendy playing wing-back and Ake playing as the left centre-back, the left of the three for City. And he was a huge weakness. And just going back to my original point, he was a huge weakness for City in that game against Leicester. And Diaz, as I said, with him coming in for Ake alongside Stones... Who would have thought that Laporte would be out that team? Last season, we were all talking about Laporte, him being out. Well, he's hardly played this season because of how good Diaz has been and the impact he's had on that whole City side. For me, if Diaz was in any club in the Premier League, he suddenly makes that defence from being a little bit shaky, a little bit leaky, to just a solid defence because he just has that impact on the whole squad, the whole rest of the back four and the whole team ahead of him. I'm just going to quickly mention the La Liga title race. And it was a huge weekend with Barcelona playing Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid playing Sevilla. And in the match between Barcelona and Atletico, it wasn't the best spectacle, I'm not going to lie, that I've ever seen with the game finishing nil-nil. Atletico Madrid did have the better of the chances on the whole. They were probably just a little bit unlucky not to come away with the win. But I'm not sure if you saw Messi's dribble, guys, where he took on, he got the ball from the right wing, took on five or six players, shot towards the goal, fantastic save from Oblak, just touched it past the post. Would have been one of Messi's finest goals. However, the game finished nil, nil with that not going in. In terms of the Real Madrid-Sevilla match, at one all there was an incredible incident where the referee pointed to the spot for Bono, the severe goalkeeper, fouling Benzema when he was through one-on-one on the goal. However, this went unpunished, with Militao having handled the ball for Real Madrid just moments before, which meant instead of Real Madrid getting the penalty, well, VAR then gave the penalty to Sevilla, and then Rakitic stepped up, he took the penalty and scored, making it 2-1, and then in the dying seconds of the match, Cruz shot from the edge of the box, deflected off the foot, out of everyone, guys, Eden Hazard. That's what you spend the big bucks yeah. on for Cruz's shot to deflect off of Hazard's foot into the back of the net at two all in that game. That hasn't changed any opinions. We're all in consensus. He's still the worst transfer of all time, just to make that <laughs> abundantly clear, boys, yeah? 120 million quid, what a joke. I'm sorry. I mean, if it's going to win you games like that, though. <laughs> Most overrated player of our generation. Very jammy from Real Madrid. But however, it didn't matter because that led to Real Madrid drawing the game 
against Sevilla. And there's been games in the past midweek. And Barcelona, well, they had a chance to go top on Tuesday. However, with the game at 3-2, thanks to Usman Dembele's 64th minute strike, which looked like he was going to be the winner... Well, Sergio Leon for Levante scored the equaliser in the 83rd minute of that match, which meant that Barcelona drew with Levante 3-all. Again, dropping points in another midweek match, of course. They lost by two goals to one to Granada, didn't they, just a few weeks back. And Atletico Madrid, well, they capitalised on that, beating Real Sociedad by two goals to one. Real Madrid, they themselves are playing Granada tonight, so it'll be interesting to see if they come up short exactly like Barcelona did a few weeks ago. But this means that Atletico Madrid are now, well, they've now got one hand on the title with 80 points at the top. Barcelona in second on 76 points. Real Madrid a third with that game in hand on 75 points. And there's huge fixtures this weekend in La Liga in that title race with Real Madrid playing Bilbao, Atletico Madrid playing Osasuna, and finally Barcelona playing against Celta Vigo. So we'll move on now, guys, and we've got a end-of-the-show quiz. So get your pens out. Oh, here we go. In the European Golden Shoe race, there are currently 12 players who have scored over 21 goals, so 21 or more goals in their domestic leagues. And you have 30 seconds to name these players. Off you go. This isn't including Champions League football, not including Europa League, solely on the league tally. Okay, so five, four, three, two, one. Okay, pens down, guys. Okay, Yos, we'll come to you first. Who have you got as your 12 players to have scored 21 or more goals in their domestic leagues this season? I've gone for Lewandowski. Lewandowski, guys, he's got 39 goals in the domestic leagues, 10 more than any other player. And just remember, guys, right, he was out injured, wasn't he, for the whole of April. And in the Bundesliga, the teams have played four less games than the other leagues as well. It's absolutely (laughs) incredible from Lewandowski. Who else have you got on that list, Joes? Lukaku. Yeah, so Lukaku has got 22 goals, joint seventh in this list. Haaland. Haaland, yes. He's joint fourth on 25 goals. Messi. Messi is second, 29 goals in this list. Uh, Ronaldo. Yep, third, 28 goals. Benzema. Benzema, he has scored exactly 21 goals. And after this, I was slightly hesitant. I wasn't too sure on this one. It's a bit of a ball one, I think, anyway. I've gone for Luis Suarez. No, he's not on this oh, list. He's scored 19 gone? goals. I had Suarez as well. Because oh, no, um... he, he had an incredible run of games, didn't he? Yeah. At the start of the mm. season, up until about February. But the goals have sort of dried out since then. I knew he'd be close. I thought he would just get there. 
he hasn't quite been at it in terms of showing the conversion rate he showed earlier on in the season. So you've got six so far, yo. Is anybody else? Mbappe? Mbappe, yes. He's 25 goals, joint fourth with Haaland. Oh, I don't know. How, how many goals has Kane got? Kane, yes. He is tw- exactly 21 goals as well. Uh, I went for the, I don't think Salah's got 21. No, he's on 20 goals. He's just off this list. He might well get on that list tonight, though, Yose, against Manchester United. <laughs> I know. Yeah. yeah. So this is a potential correction now, mate. Yes, but that, but that was my players I had given the time. Okay, so you've got eight eight out of the 12, Yose. That's not bad. Oh, Who have you got, Cal? Please. I've only got one more player on my list. Oh, okay. of course. That one player you have. Okay, go on. All the players just named I had on my list as well. Even the ones you got wrong, I, I had them on my list. Um, so the only other player I have, and I don't think he's got it, so I think it's going to be a draw. Neymar? No. No, Neymar. No <sighs> I wrote Mbappe, and Neymar was the next player that came yeah. into my mind. And I only wrote 11 players down, so that's why he got on. Same reason for Salah. I knew Salah hadn't scored 21, but I wrote him down I know, just same. in case. I knew um, it was close. Go on, guys. One more shout each. Let's. I want a winner here. Oh, Make it interesting. I, 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 I know who it is, Ew. I think, but I can't think of his I... name. Oh, well, that's convenient. It's, but it's, it's, the, it's the Lille striker. Barak Yomaz, he's not on this oh, list anyway. Oh, He's got 15 not... goals, Barak Yomaz, so he's not on this list. He had a few months out between, I think show. it was November and January, so that's why he ah, didn't okay. get quite on okay. this list. Interesting. I who can't else think. Could be on this I know list? what. It's not going to be someone like Griezmann. Ibrahimovic? No. no. To be honest, guys, I'm looking at these players now who you haven't got, and I'm not surprised you haven't got them. So I'll, I'll go through them now. So in joint fourth with Haaland on 25 goals. Do you know what, guys? I'll, I'll give you five, I'll give you a few seconds. So he plays in the Bundesliga. He scored 25 goals. Muller. No. It's not Muller. No. Um... Okay, time's up. Andre Silva for Eintracht Frankfurt. He scored 25 goals in the Bundesliga. Very impressive. Again, for the same reason as Lewandowski primarily, that in the Bundesliga, they've played four less games than the other domestic leagues at the moment. The other one is Luis Muriel. He is joint seventh with Lukaku on 22 goals. And then finally, there are two other players who have exactly 21 goals. And the first one is somebody I've mentioned to you, Yos, a few times about somebody I've thought of that, oh, do you know what? He'd be a great shout for Chelsea to sign if they can't get Haaland. And, I think I know where you're going. Go and this guy's name is Dusan Vlahovic. He's scored 21 goals for Fiorentina, the left-footed striker who could make those runs diagonally on that right side, as I've suggested a few times, in that right space between the opposition left-back and centre-back. And then finally, somebody who plays for Villarreal, and that is Gerard Moreno. He again has scored 21 goals. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was the spearhead of Spain's attack come this summer's Euros. I'm just going to quickly mention the Serie A Champions League race before we finish. 
And AC Milan, as we mentioned earlier, Yoan's moments of the week, they beat Juventus by three goals to nil. Goals from Brahim Diaz, the ex-Manchester City youngster. He had a fine performance, scoring a goal and also winning a penalty, which Kessier didn't convert. However, just still a fantastic performance. Ante Rebic as well, brilliant strike for him for the second goal. He came on for the injured Ibrahimovic. And finally, Tamori. This has led to even more rumours of Pilo leaving Juventus. However, they beat Sassuolo by three goals to one in the midweek game with Ronaldo and Dybala both scoring their 100th Juventus goal in the same match. AC Milan, following that win against Juventus, well, they beat Torino by seven goals to nil with Ante Rebic scoring a hat-trick there. Atlanta, they beat Parma by five goals to two and beat Benevento by two goals to nil, which means they are second in the league on 75 points, joint with AC Milan in third on 75. Napoli are in fourth on 73 points, thanks to their wins against Spezia and Udinese. And finally, Juventus are fifth on 72 points. And to make things worse for Juventus, guys, they've got Inter Milan coming up next mm. in their next match. I don't think they're going to make it. Yeah, it's, it's looking really difficult I, I for them. And what's really interesting, guys, about Inter Milan as well is they... They haven't downtalled since winning the league. Obviously, they were confirmed as champions last weekend. But since then, they've beat Sampdoria by five goals to one. They beat Roma by three goals to one. And this is also, guys, despite the Inter Milan chairman, Steven Zhang, asking their players to forego two months of wages because of the club's financial situation. That's a good reward, isn't it, for winning the Serie A title there? In terms of other matches to look out for over the next week, we've got the FA Cup final, Chelsea against Leicester, huge match there. And also they're playing each other in the league on Tuesday, which is a huge match in the race for Champions League football next season. Other big matches in the Premier League Champions League race, you've got Brighton against West Ham, West Brom against Liverpool. And of course, you've got that match in hand between Liverpool and United tonight, which of course was postponed a few weeks back. And then in terms of the midweek, West Ham are playing West Brom and Burnley are playing Liverpool. So it could all change, couldn't it, so much between now and next week. In terms of the Bundesliga Champions League race, Dortmund, they have Mainz. Wolfsburg have Leipzig and Schalke have Frankfurt. And finally, the league earned title race. And Lille, they beat Lon by three goals to nil. Burak Yilmaz again with a brace and his second was a fantastic left foot rocket. And that piled the pressure on PSG, who did the opposite of bouncing back following their Champions League defeat to Manchester City, drawing one all to Rennes with Garassi's 70th minute strike. The equaliser there for Rennes. And this means now that Lille are top of Ligue 1 with 79 points, PSG second on 76 points. And in terms of the fixtures, Lille have Saint-Étienne, PSG are playing Rennes. Cal, what's your match to look out for over the next week? Well, I'm going to try and go for one that you haven't mentioned that's still quite interesting, in my opinion. It's Rangers Aberdeen, believe it or not. Rangers have a chance to go the whole season unbeaten and emulate what Celtic did a few seasons ago. So I think that's quite an interesting game to look out for. Yeah, that's an interesting shout. I didn't realise that. I'm not I'm going to be honest. That uh... And for good reason, Dil. <laughs> don't, you know, don't, don't swear about it. Yeah, don't, don't be watching the game. Just, just keep an eye out for the results. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> And Yoz, what have you gone for as your match to look out for over the next week? 
Yeah, so as a Chelsea fan, obviously playing Leicester in the Premier League is going to be a very interesting game indeed. Knowing how we're going to set up, and again, because obviously we have them in the FA Cup final, it just makes it ever more intriguing. I do think we're going to win by some margin, perhaps by two goals. And again, I've just got to be optimistic because I we've been on great form now defensively. We've won a lot of games, and I really just don't want this momentum to die down, especially now going into the FA Cup final and Champions League final. We could potentially win them both, I think. So I'm just hoping this momentum keeps up going into Leicester. So that is my game of the week. So it's interesting, Yos, that you went for the Premier League game against Leicester instead of the FA Cup final match oh, wait. against Leicester. Well, can I actually say that? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Sure. Oh, no. So, yeah, I go the FA Cup final, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't really... You know, I have a history of saying I don't like the competition, I guess. But... Yeah, I was waiting for you to, to come out and say, oh, it's a mediocre <laughs> competition. I don't really care. Yeah. But when it comes to it, he says that the FA Cup final is more important than the Champions League. Who would have guessed? Yeah, who would have guessed? <laughs> but that's all we've got time for this week on the Football Overview. Thanks to Yo's, thanks to Cal, and we'll see you again for another episode next Friday evening. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.